testing one, two, three. <laughs> yeah, man. <laughs> well, I woke up this morning and, uh, <laughs> nah. <laughs> but can you hear me, though? Welcome to the No Referees Podcast, where we have unpenalized conversations with sports personalities on industry news, their grind, the game, and much more. Please check us out on our social media pages at No Referees Pod for up-to-date info on the show. No rules, no texts, no whistles. This is No Referees Podcast. Welcome back to the No Referees Podcast. I'm your host, Everest Dakajovi. And y'all, this is a special one today. We got my good friend, 10-year NBA veteran, 15-year pro, the 1996 NBA draft lottery pick. The man, one time I seen him, he had an iPod that had to be about 100 years old. You can follow him <laughs> at, you can follow him on social media at Samaki underscore Walker. My man from Columbus, Ohio, Mr. Samaki Walker. What up, bro? <laughs> yeah, yeah. What's up, man? What's up with the iPod, bro? Hey, man. About? I remember you having the old Radio Shack, like, disc bed headphones when we were overseas. Yeah. And I remember seeing a video back in the day where you had to go get the old iPod because you had to fit in or something like that. So I had to bring that up. Oh, yeah, you about with shacking on there? Yeah. <laughs> yeah, man. You know I me, mean? I'm old school, man. So he told me I had to, me and my man, tell him we had to step our game up, man. So, <laughs> yeah, bro. You know I me, mean? man. I'm, about, I'm always about five years behind. <laughs> yeah, for sure. Hey, but look, hey, it's like an antique then. You know what I'm talking about? <laughs> yeah, bro. Hey, man, it ain't broke no fixes, dog. <laughs> Hey, man, so uh, I ain't got a chance to catch up with you in a while. You know, I haven't got a chance to to see what you got going on these days. I follow you on social media. I know you're doing your basketball skills training. We'll get into that and uh, a lot of the stuff you're doing with your children. What you been doing these last couple of years? Man, like you said, I just really been enjoying man. I love, you know, been staying connected with basketball. I started playing basketball about five years ago, in which is bigger than just training kids, man. It's just a platform. You know, if you retire, you want to find something to do, how you get connected to people, shit like that. And so for me, it's a great platform to allow me not only to work with kids, but, um, you know, it's connected to my foundation, um, <clears throat> excuse me, Life Choices Foundation, sorry. And so what I do, man, it's, it's a way for me to just stay connected with people. Basketball is a growing sport globally. And so, man, uh, through basketball, I've been able to, you know, from people from China, Russia, Korea, I mean, just all over, man, just to have an opportunity to work with different kids. And not only that, I do a basketball mom's fitness. So basketball is an incredible platform, man. That's basically what I've been doing. That's great, man. I know uh, with the game being global, you spent a lot of your last latter part of your career overseas, inch in the uh, Middle East and Korea, you know, places like that. When you went overseas, when you left, not to move too far, but when you stopped playing in the NBA, how did those opportunities spearhead do then to what you got going on now? Well, you know what, man? You know, it was a tremendous opportunity getting a chance to play abroad because it really exposed me to global basketball. You know, at that time, I was totally just introduced to the American style of play. And so, you know, you know, we connected up over in Korea, man, and, uh, I had a great time, you know, just as far as experience of basketball, the way it's, you know, it was, you know, taught over there. And for me, it was just one hell of an experience to see the games quicker because I've seen guys who had played in the league prior get sent home mm. because they didn't adjust to the style of play over there. Right. And so for me, I had to reinvent myself, man, you know, to, um, you know, face up player, be able to, you know, attack and do certain things because you get triple teamed over there and kick it out. They don't want to hear that shit. You know, <laughs> nah, nah, they expect you. You American, they want you to put it down. So, you know, for me, man, it was just an eye-opening experience, but it really taught me. I embraced it. 
I had to leave my sort of American mentality behind, embrace the moment. I learned a lot about myself, bro. So it was a great experience going back to that platform of basketball. You hear me say that a lot because it, it does, for those who are able to see it, the platform is basketball, but you can do so many things within that, you know, that experience, man. I'm so thankful for it. And so for me, you know, I wanted to stay connected with the game. I didn't really want to go into like coaching and things of that nature. People always ask me all the time, why don't I go into coaching? And so for me, I wanted to own my own business, number one, and I wanted to work for me. Mm-hmm. And then number two, I wanted to be able to, you know, call my own shots as it pertains to, you know, training and the game, take the experiences that I had and and teach what I feel like the right way, which is, you know, from a fundamental standpoint, which I'm very passionate about. So, you know, being in LA and being a member of the Laker family, you know, the last couple of weeks have been very, very difficult for not just people in LA and Laker families, people all around the world with the passing of Kobe Bryant, um, his daughter and the seven other people on board. Can you talk about just what it was like to play with Kobe, to know him personally? Um, and then I'll get into a few, a few other things I want to ask you about. Well, you know, like I said, man, Kobe was a, Kobe was a phenomenal player. We came in the draft, me, him, Derek Fisher, all part of that 96 draft. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, he was class personified. You know, he was a guy who played the game the right way, was very passionate about his craft, uh, approached the game from a systematic standpoint, um, which allowed him to be one of the greatest players ever. Uh, One of the things I learned from him is, um, you know, imagination, repetition, you know, and watching film. You know, all those are key elements into becoming a, not just a great basketball player, but a good basketball player. So uh, I think we all learned a lot, whether it's just mamba mentality, uh, whether it's extreme focus, dedication, you know, it's hard work, ethic. Uh, I think that we all, whether it's through basketball or just watching the way he moves and operates and conduct himself through his business affairs, uh, I think we all said we feel connected to him in some type of way or form. Uh, so it was a pleasure, you know, to be a part of a team with him, Shaquille, and not only those two, but the other players that I played with, the Bordeaux, Derek Fisher, you know. So for me, you know, at the age of 26, I was fortunate enough to win a ring after playing with uh, another great franchise, Spurs, who we both are connected with. Mm-hmm. Uh, so... Um, you know, I can say I play with the great players, the Timmy D's, the Skills, the Kobe Bryant, you know, the Dwayne Wade's. Uh, my career has been, you know, in 10 years has been one in which, you know, I started low at the Mavericks, who I, at that time was never heard of. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I'm going to get to that in a minute. You know, I'm from Dallas. So, you know, I'm about to bring that way back. <laughs> that, that's it, it is. So, man, yeah, man. So that's, you know, again, Kobe Bryant is uh, class personified. Do you remember the very first interaction you had with Kobe coming, you know, a few years being in the league and having to feel that, you know, I, I believe I remember, I think it was Horace Grant that left and they had that, they wanted a guy like yourself to come in and fill, in, fill that spot in. Do you remember what the first interaction well, was with Kobe? My first experience was a phone call, man. It's crazy because, uh, you know, I had got released from the Spurs for some bullshit I did. Yeah, with the motorcycles, mm-hmm. right? The motorcycles. <laughs> yeah, I remember that. I, hey, I ain't want to bring that up, but uh, we'll get to that in a minute, too. <laughs> oh, okay. No way. Let's just keep it real. It is what it is. It is. Yeah, so, for real. And so um, with that, you know, this was shit I did. It wasn't because of skill. It was because, you know, at, at that time, those sports were straight class organization. It was, they wasn't walking on fine line for nothing. And so that was something that I just needed to understand. It was a growing experience for me. and. um but who knew that it was going to set me up for one of the best moments of my life. Uh, at home, you know, um, after being released, I got a phone call from Magic, Shaq, Kobe, in that order. Wow. All within like an hour span. And, you know, Magic was telling me, hey, man, you know, we really want you here. And, I mean, it was awesome. It was an awesome experience. Shaq said, listen, man, you can come here and dominate. 
then, you know, going back to your question, that first experience with Kobe, that phone call where he was like, listen, man, we could really use you here. You come here and play a huge role. And, you know, that you know, it was a no-brainer. That made me feel good. I got a phone call from Magic, my idol, Shaq, <laughs> the, the Diesel, and, and Kobe Bryant, you know, one of the greatest to ever lace it up. So it was a – and Horace Grant, who was my one of my personal idols, the power forward position who I, I thought was a player who impacted the game. I thought it was a huge role to fill. So it was um, – it was a tremendous opportunity, uh, something that I was looking forward to, a uh, way that can spark my career, and at the same time, you know, possibly win a ring. But it was a lot of pressure because you know they had just won a ring when Horace walked away. Mm. So um, you know, I had you know I had to come in and bring it. Right. Uh, but that was okay. Cool. Cool. So let's take it back to the Columbus, Ohio days. Let's take it back to the the name Samaki. Most people don't know that uh, it means fish. Growing up in uh, Columbus, tell people, you know, I've never been to Columbus, Ohio. Only thing I know about Columbus is Ohio State, and it's the capital. I don't know anything else. So, you know, can you just tell some people out there what it's like growing up in Columbus? I know I think I read you were the youngest of seven children. You know, to talk about your, your upbringing a little bit. Man, you know, I grew up poor, bro. You know, we grew up poor, the youngest of seven. Um, you know, we grew up with those times where, you know, welfare, um, <clears throat> you know, my mom and dad were separated. I grew up half my life. My mom, my dad got cussed when I was 10 years old. So, but for the early stages, no stuff. You know, I grew up, you know, I've had experiences where, you know, I've had peanut butter on a spoon. So I've had some very humbling experiences growing up. Um, which was sort of my source of motivation and connection, um, you know, with, you know, basketball, other than, you know, my father introducing me to it. But the passion came from escaping some of my earlier experiences of, you know, growing up in the hood in poverty. And uh, those who grew up in real poverty, you know, don't glamorize that shit. That's for real. And so uh, I'd say I grew up in real, you know, poverty, had real poverty experienced that motivated me, man. And so uh, Columbus is a group, you know, it's Ohio is a blue collar state and Columbus was indicative of that. You know, everybody was on their grind, on their hustle and, uh, Cowtown, Cowtown, you know what? <laughs> it was really bullshit. Get the fuck out of here. <laughs> That's no, Hey, ask any real players that been through, ask Cameron, any real players that been through Columbus, they know what's up. <laughs> real talk. But, but, but nah, you know, it was it was blue collar, man. You know, it was uh, we didn't have a lot of mixed faces, so it was real, you know, straight black and white, and you grew up, you know, one or the other, and so it still had a, a stench of that that tension, you know, there. But um, Ohio State was the biggest thing popping. We didn't have any sports teams, but. You know, Columbus was a mixture of, you know, the beauty about growing up in that Midwest is that you get a little bit of East Coast, a little bit of the West Coast, mm-hmm. a little down South. We get a mixture of all that. Mm. So we, we we pick up on all that. We get a little taste of all that. So it's real talk. We some of the coolest people. We, you know, we <laughs> from the Midwest. We go everywhere. Everybody remember us, bro. We, <laughs> you know, it's that personality, man. So, uh, but yeah, that was my childhood, man. It was... I had some great times growing up. We grew up as a family. We were tight knit, but you know, you know, we struggled. And uh, struggling, you know, the adversity was part of my motivation. You know, earlier to really want to get out of some current, you know, circumstances. But when I moved with my dad, who was a little well off, you know, things changed. You know, my dad had a really good job and was able to provide and do things a little different financially, and so. There's a lot more structure <clears throat> that I was introduced to. And so, uh, you know, it changed my life. You know, my dad was, you know, gave me a systematic approach to things and was a strong disciplinarian, didn't, didn't play, didn't play no shit at all. So, and don't know Big John. Hmm. Everybody knows John in Columbus. So <laughs> He ran that town? Oh, uh, man. Well, he, was the, he was the dad's dad. Ah, so, uh, okay. I got you. And all. Uh, yeah, and everybody came over to my house to spend a night. You know, uh, he was telling all the stories. And that, yeah, so that was that was Big John. 
by the time you get you go through you know your high school situation you're playing you're getting recruited nationally did everybody in the town think that you was gonna go to ohio state and if not how did ohio state let you out of the town and go to louisville Jesus, great question, man. Up until about my junior year, bro, I was just shooting at Ohio State because that was all I really grew up seeing. And, um, you know, Jim Jackson, who uh, I ended up playing with the Mavericks, uh, was at Ohio State, and I really fell in love with the way he played and the way people loved him, man. He was a hero at Ohio State. And the um, first college game that I went to, and so, you know, I was going pretty frequently but my junior year, uh, things opened up. You know, Louisville, Kentucky, the North Carolinas came into play, and so I started going on my visits. Mm-hmm. And <clears throat> you know, that's the game changer. The visits change up. <laughs> so when you leave and get out on these recruiting visits, what are these coaches telling you that they know you're from Columbus, Ohio? They know you're an Ohio State guy. Like, what are they saying to you, your parents, to you know, to persuade you to come to their programs? I'm gonna keep it real. My dad fucked up and let me go on a few my recruit business by myself. <laughs> <laughs> oh, so you let your hair down all the way down. Hey, hey, all I know, man, is that hey, I had a great recruiting experience. I took every last trip. <laughs> Where were your five uh, was there five official visits back then? Let me see here. It was five. I think I took four. Let me see. I went to Michigan. I went to Louisville. Let me see. I went to Iowa. Mm. And Iowa. And I actually had a great time in Iowa. I just had Reggie Red, I just had Reggie Evans on, on my my show and he talked about Iowa. He loved it. Hey. I I have nothing bad to say about Iowa. That <laughs> uh, went on three official visits. Yeah, three official visits. I took three instead of five. But um uh, Louisville, got the Louisville man, you know, Denny Crump just kept it real. He said, look, we got a guy that's getting ready to leave. You know, and Clifford Rogier, who was, you know, the starting center at the time, he said, but, no, I ain't going to guarantee you this spot ain't necessarily yours because, you know, mm. hell, last freshman that started in Louisville was Purvis Everson. Mm. And then they ain't going to start in freshman. But he's basically, like, if you feel you that guy, then shit, you know, here it is. Mm. So, you know, I looked at that and was like, man, again, that, that was the challenge I was looking for. Mm. And uh, so it was kind of a no-brainer. It was two hours away from home. wasn't too far. You know, I used to be able to drive back. But it was far enough away from home where I did feel like, you know, I was away from my upbringing. And, um, you know, it was the best decision I made because, like I said, I got a chance to compete for that spot, walked right in, um, had a huge year, and up beating my arch rival in Kentucky that year, which was the game that probably put me on the map. First triple-double in school history, I think. There it is. And the rest was shit. That was, the rest was history, man, after that. So you get there, you throw your L's up. You know what I'm saying? You got, you, y'all the cardiac cards. Y'all playing over at, uh, what's it, Freedom Hall back in the day, right? Yeah, yeah, okay. yeah. Freedom yeah. Hall. Yeah. Also close to 19, though, it was, it was it Freedom Hall put them up in there. <laughs> Besides, I was going to mention the triple-double game where you had, I think it was 11 blocks that game. I watched a little bit of film on that, and then you were just dominating that game. You was playing against Kentucky. I think Rick Pitino was the, the head coach then. What were some of the most highlights, not only at the program, but living in the city of Louisville? Oh, man. Yeah, maybe Louisville was a beautiful town. And, um, you know, it had a, it's got like a southern twang to it, even though it's still like in the Midwest. Mm-hmm. It was the border and everything so it's like as uh, soon as you get past Cincinnati and get right into Louisville man you right like in a whole nother world and uh, Kentucky I mean period you got Louisville and the University of Kentucky basketball is huge mm-hmm. so you already a star if you if you're <laughs> in the state of Kentucky playing basketball either one of those schools Ooh, you came on campus you was that bad man huh <laughs> And I had the key to the city, man. You know, <laughs> crazy part about it is that they, you know, I had a car, and uh, the coach and them didn't even know about it. The school never gave it to me. And the guy that gave it to me wasn't a booster, which kind of fucked everything up. The whole school did an investigation and shit. Yeah. So it came out, yeah, it came out that 
uh, you know, that the, you know, they couldn't find any wrongdoing in that regard. But you had to miss what ten games for that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. I had to miss ten games. Uh, well, what happened was my stupid ass, the car was clean, but I did, you know, go get some boosting money to put a system up in there, though. So, <laughs> You had some, what, you had some 12 in the truck? You had some tears back then? Oh, come on, man. Back then? Come on, you had some them, some, no what's that? What's that back then? The kickers or the JBL? The kickers, the JBL, fam. Come on, man. You had the JBLs. Now, JBLs was on another level. The kickers was pumping. If you had them JBLs, you came through there humming. And, you know, I was young. I was 17, 18, bro. I had to come through. You had to feel me when I was coming through <laughs> So yeah, that's when I got suspended over the not over the car, man, but over the system. And that's uh, where you know <laughs> disturbing the peace, huh? <laughs> hey, crazy, but uh, great time though, man. I wouldn't change a goddamn thing. <laughs> After your second year, did you decide? I guess maybe this whole the suspension process and all that may 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 have propelled your thought process to to be an early entry candidate to the 1996 NBA draft. What was that process like deciding, hey, you know, with your parents, family, that you're ready to turn pro? I'm going to keep it real with you. It was a no-brainer because what they told me was they kind of played me. They let me come back. They let me come back for all the big games. We played Kentucky and all that, UMass. And then after the season, they were like, "Uh, well, we might – might have to open an investigation back up, you know, start next year. It potentially could miss some more games. Mm. I said, oh, no, no. Yeah, like, what? <laughs> what? Like, you cleared everything. Like, what's going on? Y'all, y'all, it's hard for y'all to believe that somebody actually gave that card to me that wasn't connected to the school. I get it. But I ain't getting ready to go that route. And so I said, you know, I thought about it. I said, oh, no, no, I can't do it. I think I've done enough. We went to the Sweet 16 that year, played against Tim, Timmy D. We lost by one. But I thought, you know, from an individual standpoint, I had enough body of work, you know, to be um, at least, you know, in the top 15. Mm-hmm. You know, I didn't know in the top 10 or number, I didn't think I was number nine, but I got into my workouts. And, uh, you know, my workouts, I was able to show, I was able to do a little more. So my stock went up. Mm. But uh, so my decision was made specifically because of that experience. Well, well, I probably would have stayed at least another year Mm. or two. So you come out 1996 NBA draft. For those who don't know, uh, Mock, I call him Mock. Mock mentioned is arguably the best NBA draft in history. Uh, Kobe Bryant, Allen Iverson went number one, Marcus Canby, Samaki Walker, Derek Fisher, Steve Nash. Name on on top of name, on top of name, on top of name. I'm sure I'm forgetting somebody that you probably know. The and and Austin, Barry, Stephon Dan Murray, Pierre, Eric Dampier. Yeah, I mean the name uh Malik Rose was in that draft. I mean, the name goes the names go on. But that was regarded as one of the the best draft in NBA history. Samaki made headlines for another reason for the 1996 <laughs> NBA draft. In my opinion, it's one of the best. But a lot of people say it's one of the worst NBA draft outfits ever. So I don't think I ever asked you this question back in the day when we were together. I'll get to that overseas in a minute. But how did your NBA draft suit come about over the days and weeks leading up to the draft? was crazy was um <clears throat> the hat had no part you know to do with the suit. He got that half of like K and G or something. <laughs> <laughs> no it's crazy brother. <laughs> the crazy part was that the suit when I picked the suit up, there was a, a store next door and walking out of the store, me and my agent looked, and there it is, this hat. He looked at me. I looked at him. He said, I dare you. <laughs> it was crazy because being with Louisville, the Kentucky Derby, the Derby hat, mm-hmm. we kind of thought that like, it would play all well in together. So it was really a spontaneous thing. Definitely wasn't planned out because I definitely wouldn't have picked that hat. But uh, I thought it would be cool because it was a one-time experience and had no idea every year. <laughs> <laughs> 
every year with the draft roll around, roll footage. <laughs> Never fails. <laughs> I thought it was actually pretty good. I watched it actually uh, this morning just to kind of recap on it. And there was actually two things I noticed during that time. I know you probably remember it like it ha- like every second. The first thing was when I think maybe one of your family members grabbed the hat off your head and it kind of like kind of tilted a little bit. And the second part was when you walked up the ramp behind. I don't know why the, why they had it back then. Like they had to walk all the way around. It seemed like you were walking forever. And right. your and your suit was so baggy, bro. <laughs> I, I thought when you get some tailor made, it's like tailored to your body, but that suit was baggy. <laughs> yeah. I ain't going front, bro. That was horrible. <laughs> <laughs> That shit is horrible. I looked at that bro. What the fuck was I thinking? Like, even though, you know what's crazy, though? I was mad when I picked it up because, see, the, the tailor was uh, supposedly Mike Tyson Taylor, and she had been doing suits for this cat. So I was like, okay, because I had uh, moved out to New York. When I decided I was going to leave and go to the drafts, I moved to New York and started training and working out. So I got a place out there. So I'm in New York. I'm kicking it. I'm partying. I'm meeting people. And so I met this designer. And here it is. You know, it's damn. This is Mike Tyson's designer. Okay, cool. Let me give her a shot. Mm. Sure enough, uh, you know, I pick up the suit. And I try it on. I'm like, damn. <laughs> <laughs> the neck and everything. It's all big. I'm like, damn, bro. This is. Okay, well, shit, it's too late now. <laughs> How much you had to pay for a suit like that with from somebody who designed? How much did that suit cost you? Oh, man, every bit of 1500 two racks. Back then, was that a lot or was that not a lot? Yeah, you know, it, 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 I mean, suit now, I mean, you can pay up to four, four racks for a good quality suit now. I mean, so that dude, was a lot back then. These dudes yeah, in the NBA fair. draft, they putting their name on the inside, stitching, and they got the country flag yeah. and all that. They're doing a lot of extra stuff now. Yeah, 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 yeah. They're, these boys taking this to another level. <laughs> I, ain't, I ain't messing with these boys. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yo, you ain't living your life right. Pick up your device right now. Well, if you're driving, stay focused on the road and hit that subscribe, follow, semicolon, period, whatever you got to ensure that every week your eardrums is buzzing with our new episodes. All right. I'm subscribed. Yo, you subscribe. All right. We good. Let's get back to the show. Those who don't know, Mark gets drafted. Number nine overall in the first round lottery pick. Like he said, he mentioned he didn't know he knew he'd be top fifteen, didn't know he'd be top ten, and one of, again one of the most iconic drafts in NBA history. He gets drafted by my hometown team, the Dallas Mavericks. I'm from Arlington, Texas. You know, it's a suburb of Dallas, and I remember I was in high school when you got drafted. I didn't know shit about you. Only thing I remember when you got drafted that you had a number fifty two. I'm like, damn. Who is the with this random ass number fifty two? Who got that? You know, he used to twenty three or one or three or something like thirty three, thirty four. Like this dude coming with fifty two. What's wrong with this cat? How'd you uh, decide on that number? I know it's your your college number as well. I don't know about your high school, but how'd you end up even starting wearing fifty two? Five in high school because my birthday is on the twenty fifth. Okay. Okay. And somebody took it. My seventh grade year, I was playing in middle school, but the eighth grade brother. Mike Robinette, who was the center, the main guy at the time, he he had 25. So I said, I had to go with 52. But I bought out that year. So uh, ever since then, I said, you know what? I'm going to stick with 52. Mm-hmm. I'm riding with it. Okay. So when you get to Dallas and you tell them, I want number 52, did they like saying, then like, who wears that? Because I know like Dennis Robin, when he came to Dallas, he wore a random number too. So. Did they say anything like that? They were like, oh, we're just going to rock, no rock. With it. Nobody <laughs> wanted it. <laughs> <laughs> Talk about those first couple years in Dallas. You know, back yep. then you had some OGs back in the day. You know, you coming in 96. You had some real, real, real vets back then. Talk about some of them early years. Oh, yeah, yeah. We had some real vets, man. You know, when I came in, uh, you know, 
I got a chance to play with. Let me see. Jim, Jim was one of my vet. I, I played with AC Green. Mm. Rolando Black oh, yeah. was still playing back then. Nah, man, I ain't that old, bro. <laughs> but, uh, <laughs> I mean, I can say, hey, look, I know he played. He, I know, I know he played a long time. You know what I'm saying? Derek Harper, was still Derek, playing. Okay, Derek Harper. Harper okay, there you playing. go, Derek Harper. That's who I was thinking of. Sorry, Derek Harper. Sorry. Yeah, yeah. I was. Hey, D. Harper's on this last leg. Still playing. D. Harper pushed it out. <laughs> was Sean Bradley there then? Sean Bradley was there. Uh, Man, it was crazy because I played with like two waves of players, man. Cause you understand when Clem came in, I was there. I had Big Eric Montross as mm. a center. This was for Sean Bradley, and all them came in. The three Js, the three Js, and then that whole thing went down with the with the. It was really kind of a dysfunctional situation when I walked in there because of the stuff that had supposedly had went down prior to me coming with the Tony Braxton story and all that. Mm-hmm. And it really fucked up the locker room. Like when I got there, bro, it was so toxic that I never really had that veteran relationship. Matter of fact, I didn't have a relationship with anybody. Wow. And so because, and it kind of made me feel kind of funny because I didn't have that ear to talk to because everybody was in their own feelings because of what was going on. Jason, Jason and Jimmy wasn't talking and Mash wasn't fucking with them. It was like a whole bunch of shit was going on to where it was dysfunctional. And so they got rid of Clemens and brought in Don Nelson. He traded everybody except me. <laughs> I remember that. I mean, like, whoa. It's less <laughs> with put me on pins and needles. Because <laughs> I, you know, the whole Chris Webber, Don Nelson thing, prior to me coming to the league, I did see it on TV. And I know Don Nelson, the rumor, he didn't play take no no shit from nobody. Mm-hmm. And so I didn't know if I was going to get traded, if he was messing with me or not or what. And so uh, he, he wasn't speaking to me. So I was clueless as to about my time my time in Dallas was going to be short-lived. But, um, you know, he brought in Steve Nash, Michael Finley, uh, like you said, Sean Bradley. Uh, slowly rebuilt that uh, program around, man. And But at the time, I got tired of losing. You know, I was really, I guess, worn down of the energy that already had existed prior to me coming in that I had to deal with. And uh, I wanted out. So yeah. they, you know, people don't realize, yeah, I you turned took, down money. less money. Yeah. To go play behind Tim Duncan and David Robinson, which for me, you know, I would have done it again in a heartbeat. That before you exit, is that dirt comes in, right? And I remember seeing yeah. you, I remember watching a video clip old video clip of like you playing one-on-one Dirk or y'all had to, y'all did something and you was like man Dirk got it yeah 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 you was like man Dirk got it so I mean this is now 20 years ago now but what was it what did you see in Dirk then early I'm on I'm gonna keep it real with you that was just a little video clip that they put in there one movie made I was killing Dirk that day in practice. <laughs> I was, like real talk no Dirk would stay behind and you can tell like he was skilled but at the time, the league was still a physicality-type league. Mm-hmm. And he ain't had none of that. And so they would use me after practice to sort of beat up on him a little bit just mm-hmm. to try to play one-on-one and things. And they caught that one move on there to kind of validate Dirk. But the truth is, I was bullying him the whole time. He couldn't do nothing. <laughs> but, but from a skill standpoint, you can see what they appreciated about him in that they probably understood, and what I didn't know, and others didn't understand at the time, the game was going to be changing. He was the future. Mm. And Don Nelson really liked skilled players. Like, he was the he would let his bigs handle the ball. Like, he was mm-hmm. one of the first to do And so nobody else understood that at the time. And I, I, I totally respect, you know, the time and what Don Nelson was doing, you know, with that team, even though at the time I didn't understand what was going on. But he did want to resign me. And one of the things he wanted me to do as what Dirk was developing, uh, he also appreciated my athletic ability. And so I know that whether offensively or whether it was defensively, you know, he seen me fitting into that piece of the puzzle. My thing was I didn't want to be in Dallas at the time because <laughs> none of my friends even knew I was playing. They, they didn't get a chance to speak. 
<laughs> we wasn't on TV. Right. This is pre-Mark Cuban. I think Ross Perot was on her back then, right? A- absolutely. Mm-hmm. This is pre- we were still in the Reunion Arena at the mm-hmm. time. Hey, so. Reunion Arena by Reunion Tower. Hey, it used to be popping down there, though. Hey, don't get it twisted. Hey, it was not, oh, no, no, don't no, no doubt now. <laughs> yeah, but uh, but uh, we, uh, no, at the time, though, you know, Dallas, the whole thing had went down. I was right. drained just from the experience of being in Dallas. Uh, again, I can appreciate the rebuild, but it's tough when you're going through a rebuilding process because I went through like three different teams in like two years. They brought in Sam Cassell for a minute. You know, that whole thing didn't work out. Um, they brought in uh, Oliver Miller and all these guys. Basically, by the time you was a free, it was time for you to get that contract, and they wanted to offer you that money. You was like, man, I want to go to San Antonio. The enemy, by the way, the Southwest Division enemy. I'm going to go down uh, I-35, and I'm going to go down and play, <laughs> play and with the Spurs. And Don Nelson let me know that, too, because I went from starting to coming off the bench to coming in with, like, 15, 20 seconds in. He did uh, that to break Damn. And it it got me to the point. Then he brought in my man, Gary Trent, who was from my hometown and everything at the uh, power forward position. And I'm sitting watching Gary. And he was doing his thing, by the way. Uh, he was balling out. And so that was the business. I got to – I don't blame him. That's the nature of the business. And when you decide you're going to be ready for that grown man's league, you better prepare for the, this type of business. So when you so, you talk about that grown the grown man league before we move on to the Lakers and the Spurs times today's league, what's your take on today's league? He's like you mentioned the the league is totally different as far as like you like you said it's a grown man's league. What do you think about having the players having so much control over things nowadays versus you know how it was you know when you played? There's pros and cons to come along with it. I greatly appreciate the respect. This is what we all work for. And this is what the players that came before us wanted for the players to have control and be able to maximize their control. At the same time, the league was older at the time too, and more mature. Mm-hmm. So, but now that the league is younger, there's some things that, you know, we could probably do without, uh, you know, these younger players seem to be a little more sensitive in the era of social media. The, the tension seems to be more on their personal games than is the actual team games. And so the growth of big business has had its effects. You know, technology has had its effects on the game. Um, but I do like the fact that these younger players are talking more. Now, people in our era say, well, because of that, the game is softer and all that now. Well, look, it's give take. The <laughs> fact that these players are doing business, they're going to Silicon Valley, they're sitting down, doing things that you know guys in my era never did. So kudos to these young men for taking the initiative to sit down beyond basketball because we always say that we're we're more than basketball players. These guys are executing that. Mm. So I'm all for it. Uh, the league is softer. Uh, so we start talking about comparing players. I tell people we ain't that's different. Mm. Like don't even come at me with that. Because the when you talk about a grown man's league, physicality changes the game. Mm. You don't have to be as, as athletic when a motherfucker can put their hand on you, your arm bar <laughs> and slow you down. Right. <laughs> <laughs> when you gotta use boost strength or physicality to be able to execute certain things. And so it's a different game. And so when we compare it to the Jordans and the Bryans and all these things, you gotta take into account the era that Mike played in and what he was able to do. Simple as that. So you got a chance, speaking of Mike real quick, you got a chance to play against Mike. What was he like on that court? Uh, I hear stories about mm-hmm. him talking trash all the time. You ever, did he ever talk trash to you or did you ever hear him talk trash to any of your teammates? You was just like, damn. Man, I just got a chance to see him cook cats for 50 on the side. You know, just, just <laughs> I know that uh, one game, Jimmy, I think it was Jimmy was a mash. Might have been mash. Oh, Jimmy went and gave him 50. I might have been mashed, but uh, we went back to Chicago, boy. It was, it was, it was ugly. <laughs> it was ugly. <laughs> I mean, I think Mike had a 30 at halftime, bro, but it was, I mean, I've never seen anything. Kobe's the closest thing, you know, to Mike there is. Uh, but, you know, I'm just going, Mike was on another level. 
physically he can do things that you know, other guys just couldn't do. He was the perfect combination of fundamentals, incredible athleticism, and a high IQ. Uh, you know, Kobe followed right down that bloodline, but Mike had hands that allowed him to do some incredible shit with the ball. Mm. <laughs> and don't underestimate what he was able to do with the ball. I mean, he had flip shots, scoop shots, and stuff that was just, you know, amazing, man. So, yeah. Black Jesus, what they call? <laughs> wow, yeah, man, that's just hearing those will give me chills. Cause I used to watch all that stuff on TV, and you got a chance to watch it in living color, like every every however many times per year y'all played. Now, just like man, that's incredible. Did were dudes scared of Jordan back then? I think I heard something that recently dudes used to fear Jordan. Did you ever see that in your teammates' eyes out there? What man? Of course, like brother. <laughs> Like, like, look, man, I don't care who you thought you were, how big your ego was. Like, this dude, when you when he came to your town, you knew what he was going to do. And, you know, there was nothing you can do. And, man, it's like, so I don't care, you know, if anybody said they wasn't scared, they're lying. Like, <laughs> Mike was just a killer, man. He, and he looked to embarrass you, brother. Like, it was no doubt. And you better not say nothing. You don't look at him crazy. Don't even look at him crazy. Like, really. like, Because he's looking for excuse. See, the thing about Mike, and one day he was trying to be an asshole, man, it was that great players and what I learned from Kobe and the Michael Jordans, they look for stuff. Like, it's hard to sustain greatness, bro, and play at that high level. So you look for stuff. Oh, you looking at me crazy? What? <laughs> or the coach, like Mike would get into it and the coach on the sideline say something. Somebody on the sideline look at him crazy. Man, yeah, you, you next? You next? What you looking at me for? So, man, the dude was just gifted, man. He had an uncanny wit about him, man, that, that he kept that fire. You know what I'm saying? And so, as an aging player, okay, I'm going at your young cat's heads now. So mm. it's hard, man, to play that long at such a high level. So I just got a chance to witness it, and that's how I understand it from how I saw it. Mm-hmm. So when you get a chance to go, San Antonio, uh, uh, hit your San Antonio years real quick, you got a chance to play for Pop with Tim Duncan, David Robinson. You mentioned at the outset of this interview we both are connected to San Antonio. And everybody who listened to my podcast know I always give the Spurs – uh, their props because they were the first uh, NBA team that I got a chance to work for as an intern in strength and conditioning. And I was around the organization every day for a year and a half plus. And so the stories, my stories are from a lens of being just an, a, a, a strength and conditioning peon. You got a chance to see that and just be in them film rooms and learn from those. Yeah, don't dudes. downplay your position. No, nah, I'm just saying, I'm just, I'm not trying to downplay it, but I'm just saying I've I had an important role, but you your lens is different from my lens. So I've talked about it on my podcast through my lens. Just tell people about it through your lens. Um, just being, you know, around. I didn't I, Dave Robinson wasn't around when I was there. Let's talk about some of those early times, like back in the day with those older guys, with the Spurs guys. Man, it was crazy because like I said, I walked away from a, a dysfunctional situation in Dallas and you know, which is, oh my God, which is a city that I loved. It was hard. <laughs> but the organization, I didn't know where it was going. And so I chose to take less money, go to San Antonio, play behind Tim Duncan and David Robinson, who I highly respected. You know, didn't get to know him as men, uh, but definitely as basketball players until I got there. Then I got a chance to know him as men, which made me respect them more. Uh, I was very fortunate enough uh, to play for a coach like Popovich. Straightforward, uh, probably the best, one of the best, the best coach that I know in NBA history um, because of the way he goes about doing certain things as it pertains to getting players ready, um, how he goes at the star players and things of that nature and how he doesn't take a back seat to anyone. You know, Pop is the ultimate player development guy. He's taking players who we've never heard of and turned them into 
major role major role players on other prospective teams. And so getting a chance to play for the Spurs, number one, he had a, a great core. He had um Benny you know, Johnson, um Avery Johnson. Was Sean Elliott there <clears throat> back then? Sean, Sean Elliott was there. You had um obviously Tim and Dave. You had uh Jaron Jackson. Oh yeah. Senior. Mm. You know. I got a chance to play with Steve Kerr and Terry Porter. Mm. Uh, one year, got a chance to play with Derek Anderson. Um, but Pop developed me, man. I got a lot of minutes playing with San Antonio. And then the one where Tim Duncan got hurt, uh, I really I bought out in the playoffs in which really, I think, highlight, highlighted me, you know, from the, on the big stage. Part of that, you know, with the Mavericks, I had never been in the playoffs. And so with the Spurs, it was my first time going to the playoffs, which unfortunately Timmy got hurt, which I got more minutes. You know, you know, I had one game where I had like eight blocks. Mm. I think I got Yeah, man. I, I you know, was able to do some things. We played the signs. You know, I just I I'll say I had a huge impact. You know, I don't really talk about numbers and shit like that because I'm mad. I talk about impact. And mm. so I had a huge impact. Uh but obviously, you know, you know, I'm I ain't Tim Duncan, and so but it was enough for me to 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 make my name, you know, be one of interest moving forward when the free agency came. So free agency comes, like you already mentioned previously, you got that phone call from Magic, Shaq, Kobe, and you were sold. So you're still living in L.A. today. So talk about. I mentioned in uh, the podcast I interviewed with Yamahimi. I'd never been to L.A. before, so I'd never seen what the – before I went to San Antonio, I never knew what the Rodeo Drive and Hollywood, the Hollywood sign and the Walk of Fame. So somebody being from Texas, I, I only see that on TV. What was it like when you first moved to L.A.? What was that culture shock like? Man, I think that was the right word. It was a culture <laughs> shock. You know, considering I'm from Ohio, you know, I ain't say it was the fastest city in the world. You know, <laughs> being from Columbus, and um, you know, and Texas was a big jump. Honestly, you know, in <laughs> Dallas, you know, did going from there to L.A., brother, it was a, <laughs> it was a whirlwind. <laughs> what was one of the first things you did when you got to L.A.? Man, shit, you know, I went out. <laughs> 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 I mean, everybody already knew you were the Lakers, so I mean, yeah, you get, the, you get the red carpet treatment everywhere you go and all that. I've been here as a Spur and as a Maverick, but I've never been out as a Laker. It's different, huh? <laughs> that changed the game. <laughs> so, bro, I tell you a story. It's crazy because it kind of validated everything. Here I am, like I'm going in the club and. I see Lisa Leslie. Wow. She in there. You know, I say hello, what's up to her and everything. Then we going in and uh they stop us at the door. It was like uh like what's up? They like, man, sugging in the back, man, they tripping, man, they got it. <laughs> they rolling out. Oh, night? So finally they let us in and everything and uh I go to the bathroom. It's like uh two dudes walk in. And me and my boy in there, I'm in one stall, my boy in another stall, and it's another gentleman, I guess, in another stall. And so the, the dudes come in, I think Death Row had just changed their name to DeRoe. Mm. So they walk in there, and they go directly to my, my the one dude, and they walk up to the dude like, say, bro, hey, man, say Death Row. <laughs> I, <laughs> Damn. I said, I look, it, it fucked me up. I'm like, what is that? <laughs> so he told my man, it, it threw him off too. He said, what? He said, man, say death row. He said, nigga, I ain't saying no death row. Nigga, what the fuck you think you are? <laughs> and yo, I swear to God, my man looked at me and my homeboy. He said, man, y'all might want to leave the bathroom, bro. Oh, I tapped man. my dude was like, let's go. <laughs> <laughs> man... All you seen about five minutes later, we sitting at the table. It was like the Tasmanian devil came through that joint. Oh, everybody yeah. came in the front. He, he's everybody running out. And so 
You know, I'm out, shield got in the front. As all the commotion going on, got his cigar, smoking his cigar. That's <laughs> when I, I said, this elation is real. Oh. Like, Suge Knight, the dude that I heard NWA, all this, everything was going, this dude is real. <laughs> wow. Like, yeah, this L.A. stuff, man. And he was out there just smacking dudes up. Police be out there. Don't nobody say nothing to him. I was like, wow, mm. this is crazy. Like, this L.A. is on sort of another level, man. What was it like when you first get there, first day of training camp? How did they embrace you, and what was that like being coached by Phil Jackson? Well, one thing about me, I've always got tremendous confidence in my abilities. And I understood what coaches liked about me. So there was no identity crisis or anything going on. So I fit right into the scheme. You know, I knew that they needed somebody to play the, the power, toughest power force defensively, give Robert Ory a break, make sure that his legs were fresh for the playoffs, you know, and things of that nature, because I know they liked to play him because he was a floor spreader. And in the playoffs, the game slows down. And so Robert Ory was a crucial part of that. And so my job was to, to take all the, the – you know, the grunt and the grinding and do what I do. So that way playoffs come, you know, Robert Roy was fresh. Uh, our training camp was real life, bro. I ain't going to find that was the best training camp I've ever had in my life. <laughs> you really want to call it that. that was, like, we didn't do two-a-days. Like, we might have had one day or two-a-days. And, I mean, it, was, it wasn't – feeling them didn't believe in that, all that training, getting ready and – during the preseason, especially with a veteran team, he felt like these guys could play their way in shape. And because we had a system, mm. triangle had a system. Like you knew it was predicated off passes. It wasn't you call no plays. And so you knew what it was about based off where the pass was entered. And there was certain footwork that he wanted you to execute. And so he was more interested in the details of the execution than that. He knew that during the course of the season, we would play our way in shape and that Shaq and Kobe would make sure that the rest of the team was ready during playoff time. Thanks for listening to another episode of the No Referees Podcast. Don't forget to hit the subscribe button wherever you're listening to this show and rate and review us on Apple Podcasts. And don't forget to follow us on social media at No Referees Pod. To the next episode, we out.